This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity Mates, episode 24. Great to be with you guys again. This is a podcast where we break down the world of investing to make it easy for you guys and a bit more accessible. I'm excited to be here on another lovely Saturday morning up in Sydney. And as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren, down in Melbourne. How are you, mate? I'm very good, Bryce. Great to be with you uh, and great to be doing another episode, just the two of us chatting. Yes, we've been on that episode. interview vibe for the last few episodes so it's good that we can uh, get back in the chair and discuss a few things that we've been uh, pondering over the last few weeks so uh, let's get stuck in I guess this week where we'll start off by giving you guys a bit of an update on the competition that we're running Um, and then as always we'll go into something that both Ren and I have learnt over the last week or so uh, that's investing or finance related or, or whatever it is Last time, I think it was a Netflix documentary recommendation, so... <laughs> I, still, I still haven't watched it, though. <laughs> <laughs> and you did have one that you were going to say you were going to recommend, but you completely... Yeah, it, and so. I think I've forgotten it again. Um, oh, no. <laughs> let, me, let me think about it. Hopefully, by the end of this episode, I'll have remembered what it was. Okay, fingers crossed. Uh, and then, it's finally time to jump into a bit of a section from the Shopping for Shares book that I've been reading that I have promised uh, that I would do some sort of review on. I'm sure that was, I think that was almost right back at the start of the yeah. start of the yeah, it was. So, <laughs> so 24 te- episodes later, we've got there. Well, I mean, this is not a full review. This is just a small part of it. But yeah, yeah, we're that'll be, be looking... around episode 50 that we got the full one. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be looking at um, uh, a sort of checklist that you can use to identify long-term potential um, in stocks. And so that will then flow into, as always, a bit of stock chat where Ren and I will go through a few stocks that we've been looking at over the past fortnight or so. So um, let's get stuck in. Do you want to give us a bit of an update on our comp, Ren? Yeah, definitely. So if people have been following us on social media, they hopefully would have seen that we're running a competition with Belmont Securities. Uh, If you haven't seen it, uh, make sure you jump on Facebook or Twitter and give us a follow so you can keep up to date with all the exciting things that we're doing. Um, But yeah, so Belmont Securities have come to us and they're they're offering one of our lucky listeners a chance to win $500 
to invest through their brokerage platform. Mm. Now, mm. all you've got to do to sign up is share the post on social media, so either retweet it on Twitter or uh, share it on Facebook, uh, and then you've just got to fill out the entry form. It's literally just you know name, date of birth, just the basics, and then you go in the draw to win the five hundred dollars. Yeah. So really good. good, really good opportunity to try and put into practice some of the things that uh, you've been learning through Equity Mates, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're the we're the perfect resource for for someone to go to when they win that five hundred dollars. <laughs> no, but look, it's a really good opportunity. It's uh, not often that someone, you know, you get a chance to win five hundred bucks, but also, you know, you're not just getting five hundred cash that you can go and blow um, at the pub or online or, or whatever you want to do. That this is specifically to go towards, as as you said, Ren, starting an investing account if you don't have one or. Um, adding to an existing one uh, obviously it would have to be through belmont securities but fantastic um, brokerage platform that they've got going there so this 500 could easily turn into 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent more over over a period of time who knows so uh, it's a great opportunity who knows if you if you bought amazon in the mid 90s and you you would have got them for about three dollars a share and they're now a thousand dollars a share so there you go you know the sky's the limit and, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that we're the first Australian investing podcast that's given away money. Yes. Not only just money, but you're also, if we forgot to mention, you also get discounted brokerage as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so do you want to just explain little... what that is? Yeah. So for those that are unaware, every transaction that you will do through Belmont when you buy or sell a stock, uh, obviously it comes with some fees attached that uh, go towards the administration yeah, so that's not that's not just with Belmont. That's with anyone who you trade with. They all will charge you a brokerage fee. Yeah, so Belmont are kindly offering, firstly, that the first trade that you do with this 500, you won't pay the brokerage on. They'll cover that for you as well. Uh, and then every other trade that you do after that, they'll give you a discounted rate. There's still a bit of discussion as to what that will be at this stage, but um, I can guarantee that it will be uh, a lot less than what they are currently charge their retail customers. So another great... Uh, reason to getting involved in this competition you never know where it could lead yeah so we should say a massive thank you to belmont um they're great guys and we are very thankful that they're working with us to get one of our listeners uh going on their investing journey absolutely good good point all right all right ren sorry (laughs) you go all right well should we kick off with what we've learnt? uh it's not really this week. What we learned since the last time we did one of these episodes. Yeah, definitely. Look, I, uh, I'm actually going to also go out on a limb here and say that I'm going to leave mine until stock chat. Interesting. That's yes. controversial, but it I like it. It is controversial, <laughs> yes. You're a maverick. Structure me down. <laughs> I think mine just flows uh, really well with um, what we'll be discussing later the in the episode. So... I'll right. leave you hanging, Ren. But That's a bit of a you teaser fire, you for all fire the away. out there. All right. Well, for what I learned this week, uh, so would you believe it, but one in 20 Australians are millionaires. So, yeah. hang, hang on. So that's the headline. That drags people in. But what I learned this week or what I was reading this week, um, Credit Suisse uh, released their Global Wealth Report for 2017. Um, so I, I found it was an interesting read. It's interesting to compare where Australia is to the rest of the world. 
Um, it does make you very thankful in a lot of ways to be an Australian. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there's some there's some interesting uh, interesting stuff in there in, in the report, including a uh, I guess an article or part of the report titled "The Unlucky Millennial." So if you're if you're a millennial That's out me. there feeling hard done by, uh, you can give it a read and uh, understand why you are hard, hardly done by. Um, but yeah, look, the, the reason I found it interesting was that Australia as, as a country, we are just unbelievably lucky in how wealthy we are and how, um, how evenly our income is distributed compared to most other countries. And, you know, you, you, sometimes, for, you sometimes forget how, how different our, our life would be if we were, if we were somewhere else. So, mm, you know, absolutely. just some, some of the stats... As, as a total percentage of our population, 6.4% of Australians are millionaires. So they have over a million dollars in assets. So yeah. I, I assume that includes housing and super. So yes, sure. that pads the stats a little bit. But uh, as a basis of comparison, the USA is the same, exactly the same, 6.4%. China is only 0.2%. Yeah, they have got the most billionaires in the world, I'm pretty sure. Nah, well, USA still has the most billionaires, 714. Oh, right. China has 504. Growing. So, and then Australia has 31 billionaires. So, you know, even though China... 31 only, billionaires. Yeah, I, I couldn't... I tried to... You know, there's the obvious ones that you think of. Your Gina Reinhardt's, your... Alec Gwyneth Hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I guess Clive Palmer probably isn't one anymore. Ah, uh, self-proclaimed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um... There must be yeah. all the... Pro- there'll be a lot of private ones out there, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. There'll be yeah. a lot that, yeah, you just have never heard of. No, family, family yeah. billions. So, if any if any listeners out there want to compile the list of all 31 and send it in, uh, we'll, we'll put that in Equity Mates Thought Starters. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> but, yeah, so, um... One thing that jumped out was uh, the percentage of people with a net worth less than ten thousand US dollars. So Australia only five percent of the population. Okay. But uh, as a basis of comparison, the UK nineteen percent, so almost one fifth, and the US twenty nine percent. So they're getting close to a third of people. Oh. Um, yeah. So. With less than ten grand. With less than a net worth of less than ten grand, so you, oh. you know you start to see just how unevenly income is distributed. Um, in and in that has so countries. many flow-on effects to just general economic conditions of the country as well. Like yeah, so almost yeah. a third of your country are worth less than ten k. Like they're they're going to be in no position to be driving any sort of economic growth or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be struggling to keep their head above water. Yeah. Wow. And then, so the last two that I found interesting was uh, the number of people in Australia in the top 1% of global wealth is 1.7 million people. So 1.7 million people in Australia, the richest 1.7 million, are in the top 1% in the world, which kind of puts it in perspective of how well Australia is going. Yeah, definitely. But what is the top 1%? Because I'm pretty sure... The top one percent is actually a lot of like the technical definition for the top one percent uh, is a lot smaller. Uh, sorry, to be in the top one percent is easier than you would think. From, yeah, from, but yeah. but whatever, however, however easy it is, you're still in the top one percent. So 
you're still doing better than 99 yeah, yeah. 99 percent oh, definitely, it, it definitely. Is relative. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but then then the last one so the they used median wealth as a um as a sort of proxy for income distribution or i guess wealth and income distribution and australia actually came second um so second best switzerland was the best uh, and the U.S. for comparison was the 21st. So, you know, we look we look overseas a lot as Australians and as Australian investors because we sort of think our markets are pretty boring and pretty small in comparison. But you know, when you when you compare Australia to the rest of the world, we are uh, we are a bloody lucky country to <laughs> to be doing as bloody well. Bloody oath. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. Well, I mean, we haven't had a recession for a number of years, record number of years, and I think we've had record a record number of consecutive quarters of economic growth worldwide. I think we're up to 26 or 27 quarters of economic growth now, which is an incredibly extended period of time if you look at it from a historical perspective. Yeah. So, yeah, we're doing pretty we're pretty lucky. Yeah, so I mean that was that was what I wanted to bring to the table this week. Not not necessarily about investing, but just about I don't know global economics, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and also a check of uh, a reality check of how good it is to be Aussie. Yeah. So what <laughs> what we'll do this week is um, we'll put that report in um, in the Equity Mates Thought Starters email that goes out on Monday. Yeah. Um, Get around so, it if you haven't already. Yeah. Make sure you sign up. Um, the report there's just there's a one pager on Australia and there's that um, the sort of article on the unlucky millennials. So you know don't be daunted. It's a sixty page report. You don't have to read the whole thing. You can just skip straight to Australia. Um, but yeah, it is it is a very interesting. Well, I found it interesting global perspective on on how we're travelling. Yeah, nice, good one, Ren. All right. Well, as I said, I'm going to leave mine till the end. So let's yeah. uh, kick on. As we mentioned at the start, where I have read a book called Shopping for Shares, The Everyday Woman's Guide to Profiting from the Stock Market by Tracy Edwards, second edition. Okay. Now, I wanted to read it for a few reasons. Firstly, one, I wanted to know why she was distinguishing buying shares between men and women. Yep, that's, um, my, that's my big question as well. Is, yeah. Do you have the answer to that? Absolutely not. There is no information in here. There is no information in here that would be any different to uh, what would be in a book if it was entitled Shopping for Shares, The Everyday Man's Guide to Profiting right, from the right, Stock Market. Okay. Um, well, what, what was her name? Tracy Edwards. I actually have asked her to come on for an interview, but there has been no response. So, Well, if Tracy, if you're listening... Um, Come on the show and that will be our first question to yeah, you. Yeah, debunk your book. Yeah, yeah. so look, it's... it's, a, it's a, it, it's a really good book in the sense that it's written very, it's, it's straightforward. Um, there's not a lot of jargon. There's not a lot of stuff to get your head around. It, it addresses all of the key things that you do need to know everything from dividend strategies through to finding a broker. And then I, the book from memory finished with a whole bunch of things on options, warrants and futures and that sort of stuff, which um, was good for me just to refresh on. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's only... 180 odd pages but I think one of the she's a value-based investor uh, and she explains in the book what you need to be looking for in terms of a value stock so she's very much out there similar to Warren Buffett trying to find stocks that are 
priced below what she thinks they should be valued. And one of the sections in the book is called uh, Choosing Companies with Long-Term Potential. And she has uh, six rules that she goes by that not necessarily has to be ticked against a company. Not all of them have to meet. Four or five out of the six is a good indication that you're on the right track to choosing a company. So I thought it would be a good thing today um, to run through these six rules because you know I, I know that from personal experience, coming across uh, what the ways of thinking by various investors is always incredibly beneficial for, I mean, myself, and I, I'm sure you would be the same, Ren, in formalizing your own uh, method of uh, finding companies and stuff. So, yeah, yeah um, definitely. This is by no, no means the only six rules that you should be following. I would just want to put the caveat in this is hers, and she also does mention that there are other things that you need to be... Um, cautious of uh, but this is just a general indicator so yeah it's worth saying that you know there's obviously no right way to do any of these strategies if you ask 10 different value investors they would all come back to you with 10 different criteria for what a value stock is and even within that you know warren buffett when he was a pure value investor he had three different types of value investments that he looked for so all of these screeners are really helpful to sort of understand what people are looking at uh, and how people look at companies in the market. But if you read a book or if you hear us talk about one of these criteria or checklists or anything like that, it's never gospel. It's always just another, you know, another string to your bow. Just exactly. Just, you think about it and then listen or read about the next one and add that information. And you know, as you go, you'll build a build an idea of what the important indicators are and For what's you. sort of common amongst these different strategies. And yeah, you'll um, hopefully be able to pick some winners. Yeah, definitely. Now, I also just want to say that this second edition that I read was written in 2011. So a lot of the examples that she uses throughout the book, especially in terms of prices, are obviously very dated. And I think some of the figures that she uses in these rules are not reflective of the market that we're seeing at the moment, especially some of the uh, Rule 6 Ren, which I'm sure you yeah, would agree. Well, let's, let's we'll rip, get let's to that rip later. Into it and we'll, yeah. get, we'll get into that, yeah. And so you can kick off with the first one, but it's probably worth saying that some of this jargon we would have gone over in uh, the, our Pardon the Jargon episode a couple True. of episodes ago. Yes. Um, we'll, we'll try and define it as we go. If we miss anything... Um, there's that episode and we have a glossary on our website that you can check out as well if you want to. Yeah, good call out. All right, well, I'll kick off and what I'm, I think what we'll do is I'll say the rule and then uh, summarize what Tracy says about it and then we'll, we'll sort of put our own comments in around how does that sound. Sounds good. All right, so rule number one for Tracy when finding um, a company with good long-term potential is to ask the question, is it a market leader? And by that, she means, is it listed in the All Ordinaries, the ASX 200, or if you're looking overseas, um, you know, the Dow Jones or, say, NASDAQ? Just to explain what that is, the Dow Jones is a basket of the 30, they traditionally were the biggest, but they're not, no longer the biggest 30 stocks, but it's one of the traditional indexes that American investors look at. Uh, and then the ASX 200 is the 200 biggest companies on the Australian share market. Yeah. So the reason she uses these two as an example is because she wants to find companies that are the the head of their market. They, she wants to find the big dogs. 
uh, because she believes that you have a better chance of choosing stable winners rather than erratic losers if you at least refine your search to looking in the top top big companies. Um, she also goes on to say that there's more information available about these companies than if you were to look for smaller companies. Um, and this goes into something that we were talking about and you've done a episode, uh, sorry, a blog post on ran about uh, moats. And in my mind, when she's talking about is finding a market leader, you're looking for companies that are very defensible and, you know, strong competition, very hard to compete against. So that's her first rule is find a market leader or is it a market leader? So what what do you think, Ren? So I was just going to go back and explain what we meant by moats because I'm sure that everyone's read my blog post. <laughs> no, look, just um, just uh, to explain it really simply, uh, when someone talks about a moat in an investing context, they don't mean uh, they're buying a 14th century European castle. <laughs> it's basically, uh, it gives the company the ability to price as they want. So, and that allows them to defend their position in the market. So... Uh, a classic example of a moat is uh, Rolex, the the watch company. People are prepared to pay more for a Rolex because of the brand uh, than they are for some other watch. And so that gives them pricing power and they're able to defend their position in the market. Uh, another company that has a moat... Um, oh, can you think of one off the top of your head? Um, I was going to say sort of Telstra back in the day because of their... Um, in, a, in a way that their coverage and network was far superior oh, yeah, yeah. to their competitors so they could essentially yeah. charge whatever they wanted. Yeah, so yeah, Rolex, Telstra, these companies that can uh, charge prices as they want and they can stop competitors taking their customers away, um, they, they have are considered moats. And that's what a lot of investors look for because if a company has a moat, they're going to be a good investment for five, ten years down the line. Yeah. I also think that when Tracy says this, though, she's not necessarily uh, meaning, you know, that's what comes to our mind. But for the everyday beginner investor, she's she's using this rule number one as a, as a way to at least condense your search because there's, I think, like 13 or 1,500 stocks on listed on the Australian stock market. So she's saying... For the beginner investor, it might be a good idea to just look at the biggest companies that are listed and and start your search there. So uh, I think that's what she's going with with rule number one. Yeah, it limits it limits the risk that your your stock will go to zero. On the on the flip side, though, because they are the biggest companies, they are the most heavily scrutinised, and so they're going to be the pricing for bigger companies will be more efficient because. You know, they're, they're traded more, people study them more, there's a lot more analysts looking at exactly what's going on. So the price is generally going to be more reflective of exactly where they are. You, you're less likely to find a bargain in the biggest companies in the market. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, so right. that's, that's the first filter. Just only look at market leaders, according to Tracy. Yes. Second question, is the debt to equity ratio less than 75%? So we'll just quickly explain what debt to equity ratio is. So if we run a business, there are different ways that we can fund our business. We can go to a bank and borrow money from the bank, and that obviously would be debt. So we're in debt to the bank and we have to pay them back. 
Another way we can uh, raise money is we can go to you know our friends and family and say, hey, do you want to invest in my business? Um, and you can have 10% of the business. And uh, then that money that we have, we're not in debt to the owner, the, the person who invested in our business. Um, they just own some equity in our company. And so we're funding our operations through equity. So there are different benefits and harms to each way of funding your business operations. Uh, generally though, if a company has a lot of debt and then starts to struggle, that will make it really hard to be successful as a business because your debt repayments don't stop when you're struggling as a business. Whereas if uh, you're struggling as a business and you're funding your business with equity, then you can just stop paying them while you're struggling. So what you this second question is asking is it's, it's getting you to filter out companies that have too much debt, essentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. And she says that one of the reasons for keeping at or below this 75% figure is to avoid companies that could turn into financial time bombs, as she says. Um, because what she means is if the company does shut down, this figure, 75%, means that there is still some money in the company that can be used to pay out its shareholders. Whereas if you are looking at a company with a debt to equity ratio above 100%, then it means if something were to go wrong and they needed to close down or, or whatever it may be, then there would be actually nothing left to pay out their, your, the shareholders of the company and the shareholders would be left with nothing. So it's also good, as you said, Ren, that does, debt doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. This is just, as you said, filtering out um, those that are incredibly leveraged and I, I mean, 75% to me, a little bit high for the companies that I look at. Um, yeah. Look, I think, I think she would have just chosen a, a figure. Safe, yeah. Yeah. No, um, come on, give us a benefit of the doubt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So look, just as a general rule, if you see a company with a lot of debt, then that is something that it should be a red flag. Obviously, some companies go into debt for different reasons. Um, yeah. You know, there might be tax reasons. There might be, uh, it just might be a cyclical business. And so, um, as, as you know, mineral prices drop, then the debt seems worse. But then as mineral prices rise, then the debt seems more manageable. So it's just something that if you see a high debt to equity ratio, you just will need to do a little bit more digging. This is uh, a question that can easily be answered from, um, the company's, you know, financial report, as we mentioned in our previous episode, pardon the jargon, um, we go into a lot of detail about it, but you can find out very quickly what their debt to equity ratio is um, through their annual reports and, and that sort of stuff. So moving on, rule number three. So if your first two rules have been a tick, you can move on to rule number three. She says, does it have a return on equity of 15% or more? So what does this mean? Ren, do you want oh, you're to... asking me? Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so return on equity is when the company takes the shareholders' money, how much are they getting in profit from that money? So as I explained before, you can fund your business with debt and equity. Almost every company will have a, some combination of the two. So let's say that we run a business and we took $100 from people who invested in our business. That's the equity that we have. And then we go and run our business and we see from that $100 how much profit we can make. 
And so what Tracy's saying is her rule number three is that you need to, to invest in a company under her rules, you need to be getting at least 15% return on equity. So for every $100 that a shareholder has put into the business, you expect to be getting $15 back in profit. Yeah. And this uh, ROE, return on equity, is a rule or um, ratio that is used quite often amongst uh, investors and no more than Warren Buffett. It's one of his fundamental rules, one of his most important. Um, And yeah, it's pretty much what shareholders put money in for, really. Like you want to get a return. So So when when we're talking about moats before, if if a company has a moat and that, that... Think of Rolex, because their brand is so strong, people want their watch over other watches, they can set prices as they see fit, they're going to see a good return on equity because that moat allows them to increase prices when they need to, uh, whereas you know a standard watch brand that doesn't have that, that same brand recognition uh, won't be able to just increase prices if they need to. So if you see a company with consistently high return on equity for you know the last five years or last 10 years... You can you can confidently say in most cases that it, it has some form of a moat. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yeah, where do you where do you find uh, this sort of information, Ren? Oh, so you can find it. You can find it online. Sometimes it takes a bit of digging. Uh, sometimes you might find a website that has has it laid out for you know the last five years or the last ten years. Um, the the last year's number you should always be able to find in the company's annual report. Um, so, you know, if you want to see financial year twenty seventeen information. You should be able to see that um, on the company's websites now. Um, but yeah, there's, there's plenty of websites out there. If you just search in Google the company and then return on equity and you click some of the links, you should be able to find what you're looking for. Yeah. Now, it's good to remember that um, a re- return on equity also varies depending on the maturity the life cycle stage of the company as well. So applying a figure of 15%. Um, and this is also industry specific as well. So I actually did some digging on this, and NYU's Stern School of Business looked at industry averages in America. So the across the whole market, the average is a scratch over ten percent for return on equity. The biggest three, the best three sectors in America, 
the building supply industry had an average of 59% return on equity. Whoa. Yeah, air transport um, had 41% and restaurants had 39.8%. So obviously much higher than the 15%. Um, and then the lowest four uh, was steel was minus 17%. Coal was minus 34%. Oil and gas was minus 39%. And metals and mining was minus 43%. So that was all for F17. But you can see that uh, minerals didn't have, a, didn't have a good run. Wow. Yeah. Good little, good little stats there. So yeah, as you can see, um, return on equity um, is very different per industry. Yeah. Yeah, and and what, what you can see is that if there's a company in an industry that isn't reaching the 15% but is smashing the industry average and is consistently smashing the industry average, then you can confidently say, well, in most cases, that that company has a competitive advantage over the other competitors in its industry um, because for some reason it's able to achieve consistently higher returns for every mm. dollar that it has. Mm. Interesting. Well, the next one sort of flows into this. Rule number four is will I get a five-year share return of 15% or more? Now, it's kind of a bit of a confusing question, but essentially yeah, she breaks... <laughs> if you could answer that question, then you wouldn't really need to worry about any of the other questions. <laughs> no, exactly. Oh, I'm going to get 15% over five years. Done deal. Lock it in. Yeah. <laughs> no, so what she means by this uh, is it, the rule's broken down into two parts. The first part is... You know, the stock has to be listed on the stock exchange for at least five years. And her reasoning for this is because anything less means that there's not enough information available to her to objectively analyze the figures. Uh, and five years is also the period that a long-term investor is likely to hold a stock. Now, I disagree with that, putting a figure on like that, because, you know, investors hold stocks for any number of years and saying that it's... Uh, what a long-term investor does is just uh, not necessarily the case. But what she's saying is she likes stocks that have been on, on the stock exchange for five years and have a bit of maturity behind them, uh, especially when it comes to getting access to the information available. So that's the first part of the question. And then the second part is that the company should have averaged a return of 15% per annum over the past five years, which is similar to rule number three. So that's what she's saying. Has it averaged that over the past 15, uh, sorry, has it averaged 15% per annum return over the last five years? Um, and she thinks this is a good indicator for things like, you know, the stability of the company, its, it's uh, consistent earnings, uh, and also it's her figure for the return that she's probably looking for. So that's yeah. number four. So for context, the market compound, the market grows between 7 and 8% a year on average. So to find a company that's growing double that every year, like, yeah. You'd be the best stock picker in Australia. Well, yeah, like <laughs> if you find that, you've obviously found a winner, but it's probably not going to be cheap. <laughs> no, so in, sorry, that, so that does bring up another point, Ren, and you're right. When she's discussing this, she's obviously not saying that if one year you've got 15% and then the second year you've got 8%, then you immediately count it out. I think... Um, as you say, 15% year on year compounded is, is an incredibly big ask and probably, you know, you'd be, you'd find it, it's a gem if you've, if you found something like that. But my takeout from this is that she wants to see reasonable returns consistently over a number of five years or so. Yeah. 
Because if you compounded $100 at 15% a year over five years, you double your money. It ends up at $201. So Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I wish we could find companies like that every yeah. day. Yeah. But yeah, so... Anyway, so uh, point five. We'll rip through. We'll rip through these last two. So yeah. uh, the fifth one is she asks, "Is it a stable company and does it perform consistently from year to year?" So really, all you're looking at here is that the company is growing in a consistent fashion. It's not, you know, wildly swinging from profitability to losing money to making money the next year. Um, so you, you just want to find companies that are steady growers. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Which plays into, you know, they've got good management, they've got a good strategy and all that sort yeah, of stuff. So there's good industry. Yeah. Exactly. So not really much more to say to that one. Is it a stable company and perform consistently year to year? Done. Number six, is the current share price currently trading at less than 16 times current earnings per share? And this is her way of determining whether the current price is more or less than she is prepared to pay for. Um, so I guess we should explain what earnings per share is. Um, did we go over it in uh, our yeah, part so we the jargon? In, we went over it in part in the jargon, but it's worth just uh, reiterating because I know that the terms are net income, profit, and earnings get used interchangeably, so it's a little bit confusing. But um, earnings are what the company's left with after, you know, cost of doing business, all the tax. Um, it, it's, it's its profit. It's what it's left with at the end of the day after, you know, it's taken all the costs and stuff out. So uh, earnings per share, you can think of it as profit per share. So take the company's total profit and then divide it by the number of shares um, on issues. So... You know, if we're a shareholder in a company that has 100 shares and it made $1,000 in profit, then you divide that $1,000 in profit by the 100 shares and then each of our shares generated $10 in profit. So that's what earnings per share is. So what she's saying is that she's prepared to pay for one share um, a price that is 16 times that figure, that earnings per share figure. She's just using this figure because at the time, I guess that was the figure that she came up with. But if we were to look back at 2011, where the market was and where it is now, um, you know, earnings per share across the board, uh, sorry, yeah, EPS across the board um, is probably significantly higher on average. So applying that 16 times now, um, I'm sure she would revise that figure. But it's just an interesting way that she's coming up with determining whether or not um, the price is, is suitable for her. She would either revise that figure or wait. Yes, yes. Because obviously as the market moves, then the earnings per share of your uh, stock moves as well. Yeah, so. you, you, would either, you would either wait for the companies to improve their earnings so that the price is then cheaper or dips below that 16 times or you'd wait for the... Yeah, you'd either wait for the earnings to go up or the price to go down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So as an exercise, it was interesting for me uh, to put a filter on this and just see which companies came out at 16 times earnings. And I would encourage you guys to do the same. Um, it's not difficult to do, but um, have a play around with it and see what uh, figure 
you can come up with. I mean, there's no science behind it. Uh, she doesn't really go into where she got the 16 from. Uh, she's just saying that that's the price she's prepared to pay 16 times earnings per share. And obviously, earnings per share differs from industry to industry and from company to company. Uh, so don't look at it as a, a set in stone rule either. Yeah. All right. So that's the six. We'll just quickly rip through them as dot points. Yep. So number one, uh, is it a market leader? Yep. Is it one of the biggest companies on the share market? Number two, is its debt to equity ratio less than 75%? Number three, does it have a return on equity of 15% or greater? Number four, has the stock had a five-year return of 15% or more per year? Yep. Number five, is it a stable company and performing consistently year to year? And then number six, is the share price currently trading less than 16 times current earnings? Nice. Uh, yeah. So as we said, that's uh, Tracy's, um, I forgot her last name, Tracy e- Edwards. Tracy Edwards' way of uh, screening for stocks. Um, obviously, different investors have different ways, but we thought it was a good one to introduce everyone to sort of see what the thought process is for people as they're picking stocks. Nice. Yeah. So hopefully we can bring you some more stuff like that later on as we discover it. But uh, yeah, go Tracy. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of picking stocks, I guess, we yeah. uh, may as well cap off this episode with uh, a few stocks that we've been looking at. And I mean, you teased everyone with your what I learned and you said you were going to hold it over till the end. So why <laughs> don't you put us out of our misery and uh, <laughs> let, you know, let us know what you learned? Okay. Well, the reason I am leaving this till now is because I came across an article titled... UBS Best Bets for 2018. Um, And I always love reading articles like this. Sydney Swans to win the grand final? (laughs) Come on, on, mate. (laughs) Buddy for the Coleman? No, come on, keep dreaming. (laughs) (laughs) No, I always like these articles because my my first reaction is always, you know, we're in November and they're looking forward into the next year. These are going to be our best bets for next year, but like, why aren't they the best bets for now? You know, like what's going to change between now and next year that's going to make them significantly different? I know that's not what they're saying, but I, I like to think it, it makes me feel like the guys are sitting in there sort of wrapping up proceedings and then they'll just be like, all right, new year starts and the companies are almost at, at zero again, like a footy score and away they go. Um, <laughs> but I thought I thought I would go and uh, read through a few of them and I, and I just want to see what you think. Ren, so yeah, hit us up. So obviously they are all. They've given ten large cap companies that they've outlined as their favourite stocks for two thousand and eighteen. Well, why don't you? Why don't you give us the best uh, three or or five? Okay. Um, did you want to? Did you want to do all ten? No, no, no. I was just going to list a few because, yeah. So BHP is number is one of them. Yeah. Cool. Qantas, Aristocrat Leisure, and a revitalized Woolworths are the interesting ones for me. So I'm sure everyone will know Qantas, BHP, and Woolies, uh, but do you want to explain what Aristocrat do? Sure. So Aristocrat Leisure Limited, as they're known, uh, is an Australian company that primarily is in the business of gambling machine manufacturer so they make pokey machines essentially yeah 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 uh, at the end of the day um yeah. so i'm pretty sure 
they have offices all around the world, even though they are Australian based. Um, and yeah. that's pretty much all there is to it. <laughs> and I mean, you can imagine how good a business poker machines are for the companies. Like they're obviously a terrible business for the community and I'm not a huge fan of them, but if you're an aristocrat shareholder, you would have had some really good years because pokies are a good business to be in. Definitely, definitely. It's an, an addiction. Mm. Yeah, so those are the five that sort of struck out to me. Qantas, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking oil prices. Uh, I'm also thinking if is, it is going to come to a fruition, what we are thinking will happen next year or, or maybe the year after in terms of a bit of a down cycle that affects people's ability to or their willingness to spend on things such as travel. That might affect them, Qantas, going forward. But you know they they have done they've had a fantastic year this year. Yeah. And so they, these were companies that they're betting on or betting against. Betting on. They, these are their favoured stocks for yeah, 2018. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, why don't we ask you of those uh, of the companies that you listed, which are would your favourite bet be for 2018? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say Woolworths for obvious reasons, but I still think that. The competitive. I don't, know. I don't know if that's obvious reasons for people on the podcast. Well, I work for Woolworths. Oh, there we go. <laughs> the Check, truth is out. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, you know, um, I think the competitive landscape of retail next year is only going to increase, and I, I think we're better placed than some of our competitors, namely Coles, going into next year. But I, I, I from what I've read through these UBS reports, and I think another one was from Citigroup. The only reason the, that Woolies is a favoured pick is only because Coles is not the favoured pick, and I think they want to have something in Australian retail. Yeah, well, and it's also because Woolies' price has been deflated from Masters debacle and just, like, sluggish supermarket growth. So mm. you would, because you're buying them at the what you would expect to be the bottom of a, a lull, you would expect that uplift to to be good in 2018 true yeah but other than that i mean Qantas has always been something i looked at i'm regretting not getting on it at the start of this year when they were two dollars 80 i think they're six dollars something now so they've had a phenomenal year um but as i said look for what i think is going to be happening next year like maybe later next year i just don't think it's going to be an economic condition that will suit a business like Qantas. And I don't know, and I don't have my finger on the pulse enough at the moment to make significant comment on BHP. I mean, from what I've read, they say the Australian resources sector um, presents a potential upside for 2018, but, you know, it's all dependent on what happens in China as well. What is interesting, they have, he also mentioned that he thinks that, uh, sorry, UBS think that the ASX 200 will finish next year on 6,275 points, roughly. That's very specific. I know, I know. <laughs> they go on to say that we won't be able to match the better returns expected in the share markets of the US, Europe, and Asia. So I think we're just over 6,000 now, or maybe a little bit yeah. below. So a 275-point increase going into next year suggests to me that they think that it's going to be a very... Um, stable market really like if we're not we're not going to be seeing 100 point swings each day which we did see back in you know 2008 2009 that's my what have i learned this week i kind of think that they have a bullish outlook on the australian share market next year 
Um, they've got BHP, Qantas, Aristocrat Leisure, Woolies, um, AGL, Origin Energy among some of their stock picks for next year. So it's going to be an interesting exercise just to see how those companies do go. But gut feeling for me is I'm not as bullish as these guys are, are riding out to be. Yeah, nice one. Okay, so speaking of Europe, uh, one of the stocks that I've been looking at uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, is actually from Germany. So I'll, um, Interesting. I'll tell, you, tell you a bit about them. So they are a German online pet food retailer called Zoo Plus. Okay. Now, um, yeah, so they, they've been around for a while and the reason that they piqued my interest is because they're pretty massive, so they they are an online um, pet food and pet supplies retailer to about 30 countries in Europe. They own about 50% of the online pet food market. Um, between 2008 and 2016, they've averaged 35% growth per year. So, like, every wow. year, they're, so this is their sales growth or revenue growth. But what piqued my interest is that their profit has just been minimal uh, every year. So, you know, they're growing their sales 35% every year, but then they're not, um, you, you're not seeing that reflected in the profit that they're getting every year. And okay. so the reason for that is that they have just been investing in their business, taking yeah. all of the money that they're earning and opening new markets in Europe. They've created this like, super like German level of efficiency in their uh, supply chain and their logistics. They control the online pet food market. So obviously Amazon are in Europe. So they're competing with Amazon and they're, they're doing all right at the moment. Um, they're still seeing uh, some pretty good growth. But yeah, so because I was, I was using this uh, stock screener that um, we talked about earlier, the six points. And yeah. Uh, so this company, it ticks some of the boxes, um, you know, it would grew at more than 15, well, it's, it's revenue grew at more than 15% a year, not share price. Um, it's a market leader. So it's in the sort of, it's around the hundredth biggest company in Germany on the publicly traded company in Germany. It, uh, barely has any debt, but it's price to earnings ratio was 146.9, which Whoa. is massive when, um, you know, uh, this, the author says, that she only wants a price to earnings ratio of 16. But I think it it shows, it demonstrates how you can't just look at the number. You need to dig a little deeper and see why the number is what what it is. Because, you know, if you just saw 146.9 as the price to earnings ratio, you would think this is crazy expensive. Like there's no way I'm buying this company. But when you dig a little deeper and you see that they've just been they've been growing and they've been making so much money, but they've just been pumping it back into the business. Then you start to see that, well, maybe there is potential. Uh, it's, you know, it's a similar story to Amazon. Like they, they don't take any of their profits. Um, they pump it all back into the business. And so they, their price to earnings ratio is similarly uh, very high. Nice. Yeah. I like, I like the pets um, like industry pets? because <laughs> yeah i like pets no, i like the pets industry um it's growing and it's one of those industries where i think it's one of the last to be affected um by a downturn because people love their pets as almost as much as they love their families so you know they yeah. you often find that the the proportion of income that they spend on their pets is quite large 
Yeah, and I feel it's growing, you know? Yeah, definitely. They're, they're buying organic pet food now and they're taking their pets to, you know, uh, taking them to vets that do surgeries rather than just, you know, a vet to do checkups and, you know, there's doggy day spas and all that. There's a there's a trend towards humanizing our pets and, yeah, as you said, they're part of the family now. So that's obviously good for companies in uh, the pet food business and the pet supplies business. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So what's the price? What's its price at the moment? Uh, so it's in euros. It's uh, about 135 euros. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not cheap. No, um, that's expensive. But, yeah, um, it's... It's about, I think it's a billion dollars in revenue and its market cap is below its revenue figure. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's one that I, I thought was interesting because obviously Amazon's just come to Australia and um, this is a company that is putting the fight to Amazon in, in Amazon Strengths, which is online retailing of long life product, which, dog, uh, which animal food normally is. Um, and they're doing a, they're having a pretty good crack at um, beating back Amazon. Yeah, nice. So definitely one to look at. Zoo Zoo Plus AG is their name. Zoo Plus AG. Yeah. Okay. No, I like that. That's yeah. that's good. All right. Cool. Um. Yeah. So, are there any other stocks that you've been looking at, or anything else that um you think's worth calling out? I do have one. Um. I mean, I. The five that we kind of went through just before with the UBS report, I might stick to this week. But I've I've got one that I've been looking at. It's called Adacel Technologies Limited, and it's, oh, yeah. kind of, it's uh, I picked it up through the Copper report. Actually, they do simulation technology um, and everything uh, to do for air, yeah for, for air, air traffic controllers exactly yeah, yeah. exactly uh, and training solutions. And I might leave this one till next week, um, just in the interest of time for us, Ren. But they're um. The- their price fell off a cliff a couple of days ago, just as an FYI. I, I know, which is why it's almost a bit more attractive because it fell off the cliff purely, but it didn't meet um, earnings, earnings expectations yeah, at their yeah. AGM. So as we have discussed many times in this um, podcast, um, meeting expectation is one of those things that affects price but doesn't necessarily affect the underlying performance of the business. Yeah. So It's a really interesting company because it... So it was the sort of training standard for military and civilian air traffic controllers in America, and yeah. it still is. Yeah. So the way that the air traffic controllers get trained is they go through feeder flight schools where they have those schools have some discretion on what simulation software they use, and then they all have to go to an um, FAA, so that's the Federal Aviation Administration uh, certified school, and they all use Adacel technology still. So they're the industry standard in America. But what we've seen is that Adacel have been, uh, they've been tendering for a whole bunch of different countries, militaries, uh, tenders for, for this software. And they've been picking up a few, but it is a business that is very dependent on the continued winning of tenders. Yes, definitely. Work. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But what? then once, once you win the tender, then you have a, it's all systems some, go. some certainty for, you know, three years, five years, 10 years, however long the government tended for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, They actually just won a a new tender, well, not just maybe three or four months ago, a a military tender in in Central America that was, it's quite a substantial amount, so that'll keep them going for a while. Yeah. Um, But yeah, look, I might leave the details for that until next time, but if anyone's interested, 
just jump on, have a, have a look. Their ticker is ADA. Um, they're on the ASX. Um, so that's one I'm having a look at. But yeah, I'll save the details for later. Nice one. Cool. All right, cool. Well, um, that will that will come that will bring us to an end of our stock chat. Um, yeah. If if any listeners want us to uh, talk about any stocks, you know, if there's anything they've got an eye on and they want us to uh, have a chat about, uh, hit us up on social media or email or yeah, definitely www.equitymates.com. Yeah. Um, make sure you enter our competition to win five hundred bucks. Uh, the easiest $500 you ha- could ever make. Yep. And who knows, if you invest it right, you could turn it into a lot more. 501. Than yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, and then last but not least, uh, make sure you sign up to our weekly email, uh, five interesting and insightful resources or articles delivered straight to your inbox. Make sure you check your junk mail though because... Some have been ending up there. Yeah, we need to work our way around that somehow, Ren, but we'll figure it out. Yeah. And last but not least, I said I'd try and remember the Netflix documentary that I forgot in a previous episode. Uh, I did remember it. It's called um, Silicon Cowboys, uh, and it's about uh, compact computers and how they took on IBM. So after you've watched your recommendation, which was um, Icarus. Icarus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, check out Silicon Cowboys. Yeah, definitely. I've got another Netflix recommendation just finished as well, so we'll leave that for next week. Uh, is, is, it, <laughs> is it Stranger Things? No, no, no. I'm not into that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, until next week. Well, so next week and the week after, we've actually got two interviews. So uh, hope everyone enjoys those interviews. And then we'll be back doing another episode like this in a few weeks' time. Um, Hopefully, into Chrissy. Yeah, we yeah. might even have your book review about shopping for shares by then. <laughs> Mate, come on! It took me this long to get <laughs> one one or two pages out. <laughs> Don't get your hopes up. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we'll see. All right, bro. Well, um, good to chat to you as always. Um, enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, hope everyone got something out of that. Um, those six rules that we went through, um, we'll put up on online um, at some point. So, uh, or jump in and have a look at the book. It's uh, Shopping for Shares by Tracy Edwards. Uh, it's a great little read for, for a beginner. And we'll, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Yes, for yeah. sure. All right, cool. Until next week. Equity out. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.